Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Welcome everyone. Here's another episode of uh, the Broad Eye podcast. Uh, today we have uh, Ellen Dimaras. Uh, she's a PhD, super accomplished. Like she's involved in the research for retinoblastoma in the Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, also affiliated with the ophthalmology department of uh, University of Toronto. So I'll let her uh, continue and uh, to introduce herself. Uh, how's it going, Ellen? It's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Congratulations on the podcast. Um, a little bit about me. I'm a scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Um, my interest in, in retinoblastoma or childhood eye cancer, which is what my lab focuses on, started uh, when I did my PhD in molecular genetics a long time ago, and that got me learning about cancer as a disease um, of the genome. And then I moved more into sort of clinical research and global health in my postdoctoral fellowship, which uh, leads me to what I do now in patient engagement in research, a little long way off from lab-based research, more focused on patient values and what they like, and it's kind of exciting. That's, that's very interesting. Before we kind of dive into the, the research that you do, uh, uh, maybe you can just talk a little bit about retinoblastoma and like to put the topic into perspective. Uh, it is pretty rare, right? Like, I mean, I used to work with retinoblastoma myself and most people were kind of like, I mean, what, can you get cancer in the eye? You know, like, I mean, they really had no idea that uh, there was a possibility. Uh, so how, how rare it is in Canada? How often do you see it? Yeah, that's a good question. I still get it all the time. Um, in Canada each year, there's about 25 new cases across the country. So that's pretty small. Worldwide, um, the incidence is one case for every 16,000 children that are born. Um, essentially, it means that where there's high populations and high birth rates, there will be more children and consequently more childhood cancers like retinoblastoma. In Canada, we have a small population, relatively speaking, and low birth rate, and so we get a small, small number. Yeah, and and it, it's funny because you now we, when we, when you think about the number, right, twenty five cases or so, you know, like it's it, it it sounds small, right? I mean, but a small number, but it it's the, the a patient with rectal blastoma, it's not like a cataract patient, right? That you do the surgery and the patient's gone, right? Like, I mean, those, those patients require like many months or years of treatment, like, I mean, many, many uh, uh, different kinds of treatment and, and, and a lot of personnel as well, like um, medical or not, right? So it's, it's, it's time consuming, like to, to treat those 25 cases a year, isn't it? You're right. It takes a lot of effort right up front when these kids are diagnosed with the number of uh, visits pretty much every month when they're first diagnosed, if it's a complex case. And actually about half of the cases have lifelong consequences. Um, it's uh, half of the cases have what's known as a heritable form. So the gene that causes the cancer in the eye is uh, broken or there's a mutation in all the cells of the body, which actually makes it a cancer predisposition syndrome. So these people uh, may get cancers, second cancers, other cancers uh, later in life. So it's a lifelong thing. Um, it can affect multiple generations and 
that's why even 25 cases per year, they don't go away. They stay part of the retinoblastoma community for their whole lives. And so it's quite a big community overall. And, and how can a patient know that that kid might have a, a tumor in the eyes because it's not something as visible as, as a skin cancer? Yeah, it's something that some people might miss because the child otherwise isn't complaining. There's no pain. Um, often it's not even a, a vision thing that parents notice. It's a white pupil. So often this is seen in photographs. You know, when you take a photo of someone and you get that annoying red reflex and you have all these great features on your phone to turn it off. Well, instead of a red reflex, you might get a white reflex. It looks like a cat's eye, um, it's a shine. And when you see that over and over again, a lot of parents, that's what they first notice and say there's something wrong. They start Googling and they might learn about retinoblastoma that way. Um, less commonly, it might also be a crossed eye or a red or swollen eye. Um, these sometimes also indicate retinoblastoma. All of these signs actually could even indicate other eye problems. So the recommendation is that if you notice white people, uh, crossed eye or red swollen eyes in a child, just take them to an eye doctor because even if it's not cancer, it could be something else that could threaten vision. Yeah, that's that's the very important point. Right? Like so the retinoblastoma numbers might be small, but there are other things that could look like retinoblastoma and they are not as rare retinoblastoma and, and they do require uh, diagnosis and intervention as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And for, for parents that are a bit more proactive, you know, not to say scared and would be willing to examine their kids anyway, even if there are no symptoms at all. Uh, so consider that the incidence is it's, it's quite small and only because it's still a rare disease. Is there any indication like to, to examine kids, like no matter what? And if so, how soon would they receive their first uh, retinal exam? That's a good point. Um, so th the unfortunate situation is that there are recommendations for children's eye exams, but they're not uniform. So that means that a lot of different professional bodies have recommendations for child vision screening that are slightly different from each other. So for example, the um, Canadian Association of Optometrists, they recommend that infants and toddlers do their first eye examination between ages of six and nine months. Um, and then that preschool children undergo one eye exam between two and five years. Um, whereas the Canadian Pediatric Society says screening should be as early as zero to three months. And then again at six to nine months. So, I mean, these are all good and they're within the time you might expect retinoblastoma to be developing or any other vision problem. Um, the problem is that we don't quite have a consensus um, and when you study health practitioners and whether or not they're following these recommendations, they're not often um, applied consistently. So, you know, you really need the parents to push and say, yeah, I want my baby's eyes examined. And then the additional complex thing with retinoblastoma is that because these tumors sometimes are small when they're first developing, even if an eye exam is done at the appropriate time, you still could miss it. Um, and so it's not clear to what extent screening is relevant in picking up retinoblastoma early. It could, but it could also be a, a normal eye exam and the retinoblastoma is seen later because simply the tumor gets larger and is more visible. 
So a lot of what we see in retinoblastoma diagnosis is the parent seeing something at home and bringing that to the attention of an eye doctor. Um, and in fact, around the world um, for retinoblastoma early detection, most uh, efforts are focused on public awareness of retinoblastoma and, and making parents aware that if they do notice that white pupil, they should bring it to the attention of the doctor versus um, medical focused screening programs to pick up essentially a needle in a haystack, which retinoblastoma is. Yeah, that's very interesting and, and important like to highlight like how crucial it is for the parents to be to be involved and, and aware like, of, uh, of the early symptoms of uh, retinoblastoma. Uh, so like for, for the I mean, for the unfortunate cases that happen to have one, uh, what parents can expect, you know, like, I mean, in terms of, in terms of treatment, you know, like they, I mean, they hear the word cancer and, and of course, right away they freak out. Uh, so the, the usual questions are like, is, is it a life-threatening disease? And the second one, if you save the, the kid's life, can you save their, their vision or, or is it, guarantee that they're going to be blind on their affected eye for life. Yeah, it's it's tough because the eye is so, you know, um, sensitive and important to quality of life. And, um, you know, sometimes the truth is saving the child's life comes at the expense of vision. But we're getting better at saving lives and vision together, um, at least here in Canada and in the Western world. So when the disease is caught early and the tumors are relatively small. There's a variety of treatments that can save the eye and vision. Um, sometimes that's chemotherapy alongside focal therapies like laser or cryotherapy, which is a freezing beam. Um, there's new innovations now where chemotherapy can be applied directly to the eye as well. So that's a new mode of treatment that would save um, the eye and also limit potentially um, side effects uh, associated with chemo, chemotherapy that would be given through um, you know, a systemic uh, a way that would affect the whole body. And um, sometimes though the tumors are larger and they threaten to escape the eye and, and threaten the life of the child. And so in that case, the clinicians may elect to remove the eye. Um, but even that, you know, um, the other eye, if it has good vision, survivors report that that's not a huge uh, effect on their quality of life. They adapt with monocular vision. And uh, now prosthetic eyes are quite good matches to the remaining eye so that it doesn't have a huge effect on the cosmetic appearance. And so there's, you know, a good life after that, even with one eye. Um, we're very lucky here in Canada. So you asked, you know, what is this? Uh, can you survive it? And our survival rate in Canada is 96%. So near 100. That's one of the highest in the world. And it's really to do with um, early detection, uh, availability of quality care. When you go around the world, that changes because of um, varying uh, levels of access to care and awareness of those early signs of retinoblastoma and so survival can be quite low in other settings. Yeah, I think retinoblastoma is a great example of a cancer can, that can be uh, uh, impacted by, by proper medical care. Right? Like, I mean, it's not one of those cancers that, like, I mean, 
even with the treatment, you know, like I mean, the patient's prognosis is very poor. Uh, this one is a, is clear night and day. Like maybe if there is proper care, the the survival rates are very high, but otherwise they're they're very low. Yeah, you're right. I remember um, an oncologist at SickKids. She's she's retired now, but she was giving the diagnosis to a family, and she said, you know, if you have to have cancer retinoblastoma is probably the best cancer to have because we can we can save lives we can save vision in most cases and so although it's nobody wants cancer if you have to have cancer this is one that you want to have compared to the rest yeah that's a good way of putting it uh so as we started to talk about counseling uh, of course that's a great it's, it's super important when dealing with patients with cancer particularly retinoblastoma uh, those patients, like they're invariably kids, they usually they eventually age, right? And as you said, it's it's a lifelong relationship that the the medical team established with the patients, and and eventually they might want to have kids of their own. And uh, and and you also mentioned that it is a, a genetic inherited disease. So what kind of cancer it's given to those patients? Are they uh, uh encourage like to have kids or are they advised against uh, they can they be tested like to see if their kids will have cancer as well or not so, so how does it work yeah there's been huge advances in genetic testing so um you know oftentimes kids with retinoblastoma are the first ones in their family but as i mentioned about half of them will carry this causative mutation or the, the mutation that gives rise to the eye tumor and all the cells of their body. So they have risk of second cancers later in life and also passing on that to their children. And so um, the genetic testing performed on the child, that result is something that um, remains part of that child's chart. And when they come of childbearing age, um, they, they can book another genetic counseling appointment to learn more clearly their risks. Because of course, when, when all this is being uncovered as the child is an infant, the information goes to the parents. Um, the genetic counseling is explained to the parents. And so we do have a little bit more work to do to um, build that legacy of knowledge transfer to the kids as they grow older. And I think that's a, that's a big issue in pediatric oncology overall, and we're learning of better ways to do that. Um, but if all goes well, the genetic counseling has been retained by the parents, the child, as they get older, they continue to meet with their genetic counselor and oncologist, and then they um, want to start a family so they can uh, really sit down and think about their options. And the knowledge of the, of their own genetic result is useful, um, depending on their choice, they can, um, do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, so they can choose to um, basically undergo in vitro fertilization and select embryos that do not carry their mutation and um, have a child that will not be affected by retinoblastoma. That's one option. Another option is to um, go ahead with uh, you know the pregnancy and know that there's a 50% risk of their child having retinoblastoma. And at the appropriate time during the pregnancy, um, doing a prenatal diagnosis and, and seeing if the, um, if, the, if the fetus carries the mutation of the parent that was affected with retinoblastoma. And if the, um, the, the infant does, then um, that child can be born early. So induced just uh, still at term, but slightly early, so near term. 
and the eyes can be examined right away and, and keep on being examined until a tumor is detected. And we've actually shown that um, children that undergo prenatal diagnosis in this way and are pretty much examined from the day of birth onwards have better visual outcomes. In fact, there's one case where, you know, the tumor was found so early with um, special imaging equipment we have now that basically it was treated with just a few, you know, five laser burns and that was it. And so that causes minimal disruption to the retina and um, offers a very good chance for vision um, for that child as they grow older. Yeah, it's, it's, it's again, it's very interesting, right? That uh, a kid that it's presumably at a higher risk might at the end have a better prognosis than a kid with a lower risk because he was surveyed more, 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 more closely and consequently treated earlier as well, right? It's a very good point. Yeah, no, knowledge of that genetic predisposition can help with that early intervention. So as as more survivors, you know, grow up and come of childbearing age and have kids of their own, you know, we may we may manage this a lot better for those kids than the ones that we pick up randomly. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so diving like specifically on on the project you you're involved on which is like super interesting i'm very curious about uh, I've, I've been involved in research as well and and traditionally research is basically done by doctors on patients right so the 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 role that the patients take on a research pro project it's usually as uh, 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 I mean, they, they, they receive the uh, subjects, right? Like I mean, so they receive the treatment and they not have much of a saying on designing or, 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 or eventually implementing the findings of the research project itself. And it seems that, you know, you, you're turning that upside down and uh, you're recruiting uh, patients to, like, to, to actually become researchers. And exactly. uh, <laughs> uh, I, I want to know everything about it, so <laughs> I'll let you go. <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a novel idea. And um, it's actually been happening in the retinoblastoma community for a while, maybe not to the extent that it's happening now, but definitely there's been a close partnership of survivors and parents with the clinician and researcher teams um, in Canada. And one example of that is the clinical care guidelines, which were published in 2009. Um, it was a, you know, the clinicians who treat retinoblastoma and study retinoblastoma across Canada came together with support of the Canadian Retinoblastoma Society, which is an advocacy organization of families affected by retinoblastoma. And together they developed the first clinical recommendations for how retinoblastoma should be treated across Canada. And so that involved patients really um, as people reading papers, understanding and making those recommendations together with the clinicians. And there's been various um, other sort of one-off things uh, that have happened because of clinicians who and researchers who recognized there was value in listening to patients, but it was never quite formalized. Um, I remember when I was a a grad student studying retinoblastoma in the lab one summer, one of our summer students actually was a survivor of retinoblastoma. She had an interest and was a science student and came and worked with us in the lab. And so that was my first time working with technically a, a patient or a survivor in a research setting. Of course, she also was a researcher because of her training. 
And then um, later on, um, I, you know, I, I became a little bit closer with individuals from uh, World Eye Cancer Hope, which is a global retinoblastoma advocacy organization. And in chatting with um, Abby White, who's a survivor of retinoblastoma um, and familial retinoblastoma, her dad was also affected. She would often sort of say, hey, why aren't you studying this? Or would, it, would this make a good research idea? And one of my early studies in, in my own independent lab was looking at how parents cope with retinoblastoma. It was a research that I had no expertise in. I'm not a psychosocial researcher, but I thought, huh, survivors want us to study this. Let's just see if we could do it. And um, it was that experience and this sort of knowledge that patients really want to be part of an influence research um, that culminated in us forming a, a research advisory board with patients. And it's, um, it was supported by the Canadian Institute of Health Research, so our federal funding agency here in Canada, which started a strategy for patient-oriented research and offered grants to help projects like these formalize and get off the ground. And so we, we took our experience of, you know, this informal relationship with patient communities and advocacy groups and formalized it with this grant and said, we want to run a patient engagement strategy um, that's going to um, find patients beyond just sort of our informal network. So really go across Canada and find individuals we may have lost out of the community um, and, and get them engaged again. We want to share with them research findings because they might need to know, for example, the new, the new stuff about prenatal genetics and the fact that you can um, diagnose a baby before they're born, you know, that might be relevant to a survivor who maybe has, um, has lost touch with the retinoblastoma community. And then the third one is we want to actually make, create a mechanism by which patients can influence the research agenda. So we get all their diverse perspectives um, informing the work we do. And <clears throat> excuse me, um, as we mentioned, um, <clears throat> the CIHR actually wants us to do that because they recognize that when patients are involved in research, the research that comes out of the studies is more likely to be um, adopted and used and lead to bigger patient impact. So that's our tax dollars at work. They're recognizing they want a bigger bang for their buck. And so, um, how better to make sure that our research dollars are making an impact than by making sure the research is including the patient perspective. So that's how it started. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's so obvious, right? Like, I mean, that it's, it's, it's amazing that like no one had thought about that before. And all coming from taking side kind of like a, a business look at it, like if, if the patients are seen as clients, right? And we are seen as service providers, what you're doing is basically listen to your clients. I like, I mean, then research being the product, like you, 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 you're catering, you're tailoring the, your product, which is the research specific to, to what the patients are telling you that they, that they That's need. Exactly right. right. It's, it's what any business would do. It's how these focus groups and ad agencies work to sell their products to their client base. And we've been sitting in our research silos thinking that we're the geniuses doing the research that's going to matter, but we're forgetting about our research can't stay just in our scientific journals. It needs to be used and applied. And we can't do that without all the stakeholders on board right from the beginning. So what started as a 
passive approach first, right? With the patients were asking to, to be involved on it. Yeah. Now it's more like an active approach. So you, right. you're, you're out there trying to recruit people to, to, to be involved in, in to, to, to a variety extent, right? So, I mean, people can, can, can be just respond a survey or they can actually be like hired as a researcher. So there's yeah, different we, ways of participating. Exactly right. Like we, you know, in the informal approach, you really get one type of highly motivated person who has the time and the resources. And um, it's, it's maybe not reflective of all the perspectives out there. There's busy people from a variety of academic backgrounds, knowledge bases, but their lived experience is important. It's not unlike all our human resources really trying to focus on this equity, diversity, inclusion. So we don't just want um, diversity in our patient. We, we want to be inclusive and allow for different roles depending on what everybody wants to do. And so we first studied what our patients wanted um, and, you know, how they wanted to be involved and learned about some fears, you know, this perception that research is something so specialized, I have nothing to contribute. So why should I be part of it? And we tried to cater to those things to have a variety of roles. So we have um, a parent in research role. So this is someone who's hired right in my lab, who provides lived experience on the research um, uh, that's happening in the lab, but also leading um, the engagement of others and helping them, you know, understand when we're putting a grant together and we want patient partners, this is how you put a CV together. If they're not of a, you know, a background that would already know that. Um, this is how to read a scientific article. We have patients who volunteer to um, translate scientific articles into lay language. Some have scientific uh, background themselves, so it's a lot easier. Some don't, and so the parent in research um, supports them to do that. Um, we've got uh, retinoblastoma survivors who are now university students and, you know, really savvy also in social media. So they use social media to share research results and um, engage with survivors who are on social media or parents and um, maybe recruit that way. And we document interest in the, um, the work through a registry, which we're, we're calling the retinoblastoma research community. Our patient said registry sounds too formal. That's a very researchy term. So we're rebranding, we're calling it the Canadian retinoblastoma research community. And essentially interested people can sign up for two um, types of participation. The first type of participation is really someone who wants to be kept abreast of what's happening. They want to know about the new research related to retinoblastoma, but they're not quite ready to, to do the work. And then the second part, the second tier is people who want to be kept abreast of all the research, but also want to actively participate, whether it be in picking a research question, providing their lived experience, helping to recruit others, uh, leading a, a working group meeting, uh, giving a talk at a, uh, at a, at a, a meeting, uh, like a scientific meeting. We've had parents um, publish papers with us as co-authors. So there's a variety of roles that people can pick. We have a parent like pretty much managing our website and he's using his web skills to do that. And um, essentially we try to tailor the skills of each individual interested in participating with the roles. And when we do that, we're able to um, you know, have that robust engagement. And that's really the work done by our parent in research who's an embedded 
person in our lab that's able to catalyze all this exciting stuff with the patient community. That's good leadership, right? Like playing people's uh, strengths and, and yeah. like, I mean, adding to one another. Uh, all right. So just put some names on things there. Like, uh, so you, you mentioned like this initiative is the Canadian retinoblastoma research group. Yeah. So I know it okay. gets a little bit confusing. So mm -hmm. the, the advisory board is the Canadian retinoblastoma research advisory board. The mm -hmm. advisory board is led by myself and the parent in research, Ivan Aristevsky and uh, a steering committee. And each year we meet annually in person, except this year during COVID, but we have an annual meeting where all our membership gets together and our membership is documented in this registry, which we're now calling it the community. Um, in, in, my, in my research mind, registry makes sense because everybody registers, but it was a term that was alienating a lot of our, our, our members. So the Canadian retinoblastoma research community is basically a database of all our members. We meet, um, annually in person and work every month or so online on a variety of projects. And um, where we govern the strategy, these three goals of um, sharing research results, identifying patients from across Canada, from diverse geography and, um, you know, retinoblastoma experiences. And together we co-create research. And one of the first things we did was to decide on what are our top 10 priorities for research. And um, we followed an established process to collect research project ideas from across Canada, from clinicians, patients, researchers, and um, rank them uh, based on uh, you know, in a, an in-person workshop where we really discussed what was important, why it was important, and came up with our top 10. And that's what we're focusing on, uh, co-creating research. And not just that those research projects happen, but that those research projects include patients on their study team membership. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna list all that in the description of this podcast episode and, and also on our on our website, so the listeners can can refer and find find you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's 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 great, right? So it's specifically. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you you sort of mentioned briefly a few of those, but if you can just like uh, list the the benefits that. Uh, the, the research team, research traditionally speaking, right, like the, the doctors and PhDs and whatnot, uh, are seeing by recruiting patients to help. Yeah, ultimately we get to learn from patients what they want us to research. And, you know, it's, it's better for us to have our research results be used. Uh, they're more likely to have an impact. And that's really how we measure the significance of our results. You know, how did this get to a real world? change or is it just sitting in a journal somewhere um i think the benefit too is to recognize that patient lived experience is another form of knowledge or another data source if you will that enhances the research output you know it's, um, it's an underutilized form of knowledge and i think that access to that and, and acknowledging that it is knowledge um it's not just a you know an, an opinion it's an experiential knowledge and expertise that is 
often lacking from our research team. So in the same way you would recruit a statistician because you need statistical expertise, having a patient on your research team gives you that lived experience and it only serves to enhance um, your research. Another benefit is, you know, sometimes um, research, it, it, is, it does come from, you know, a, a research expertise and the impact maybe is not understood yet by the patient community. And so this um, Canadian Retinoblastoma Research Advisory Board and its membership, it's an opportunity to communicate research ideas to patients and help them understand and bring them alongside. When we did our top 10 priority setting exercise, it was interesting because a number of um, research ideas came from patients and uniquely patients, which what we, what we were getting at, but a number of ideas also came uniquely from researchers that the patients hadn't um, thought of. And when we came together in that workshop, we're able to discuss the benefits of these ideas. The patients then saw, understood and said, actually, yeah, that is important to us. We just didn't know about it before. And so this is a nice forum to have those kinds of exchanges um, and bring important issues to the forefront. So I think that's a huge benefit for researchers as well. Do you, do you, know, do you know if there's any other uh, like specialty, any other disease that have something similar or, or you're the only one doing that oh, in retinoblastoma? There's so lots. I think we're um, the first pediatric cancer to do a priority setting exercise in this way. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely there's a lot of patient engagement um, outside Canada too. The UK is a leader in this and, and there's a lot of patient engagement in ophthalmology and adult ophthalmology. And so we borrow a lot of their uh, techniques and, and expertise from there. There's great stuff happening in Europe. And um, the USA also has the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI. There's a lot of great uh, work and, and patient partnerships coming out of that. Since Canada started the strategy for patient-oriented research, I think it's also served to highlight some of these existing uh, patient-clinician research partnerships happening across the country and um, maybe weren't as, um, as noticeable before until SPORE, um, at least if it wasn't in your field, um, it wasn't not noticeable before. So now it's sort of brought together this community where um, we, we, we can learn from each other. Every province has a strategy for patient-oriented research support unit as well. And so these offer support to researchers who want to um, engage with patients and learn how to, to start their, their own networks as well. That's fantastic. Uh, Ellen, uh, I think that's a wrap. You know, like, I mean, you, you did great at answering my questions. I know, I know a lot more about that initiative, but I'm going to continue reading uh, about that. It's something that looks, uh, I wouldn't say promising because it's a reality, but I don't think you, you're going to stop there. And the benefits from that initiative will be seen like I mean, a long way into the future. Uh, any final words before you wrap it up? Um, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's always a pleasure to speak about this project. And um, especially since you have an ophthalmology audience, um, I'm hoping that, that people are interested. If people want to join our community and, um, and uh, contribute, please get in touch. Um, I think this is uh, exciting and congratulations on your podcast. Again, I'm learning from it um, as well. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Alan. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.